This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 164th edition of the program. Today is October 16th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week, and that includes Fidi D'Antoni, as well as Samuel Maburu, and I'd be remiss if I didn't give special shoutouts to Twitter users xzamelo and at Jared underscore Lind for rocking the Humanist Reports Policy Over Platitudes t-shirts that we are currently selling over at humanistreport.com slash store. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the program, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, first, we'll talk about how Republicans are trying to rig elections across the country by resorting to their usual voter suppression tactics in states like Georgia and Nevada. We'll also talk about President Trump's unhinged interview with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes, as well as his painfully idiotic attack on Medicare for All in USA Today. And after talking about Trump's attack on Medicare for All, I will provide you with Bernie Sanders' response. We'll talk about why Brett Kavanaugh may end up being the final nail in net neutrality's coffin, and we'll also look at a study that determines exactly how many comments submitted to the FCC were actually opposed to their repeal of net neutrality in 2017. Also on the program, Eddie Glaude educates Bill Maher about what's really happening on college campuses, former Trump supporters speak out after leaving the MAGA cult, and finally on the program, we'll talk about the ripple effect that Jamal Khashoggi's alleged murder by Saudi Arabia is having around the world. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the program. Let's go ahead and jump into the first story. One of the most high-profile elections in the country currently is a race in Georgia between progressive Stacey Abrams and Republican Brian Kemp. And according to Real Clear Politics, both candidates are in a statistical tie currently, which means that Stacey Abrams is on the cusp of turning this red state blue. So the question is, what is Republican Brian Kemp doing to ensure that he defeats his opponent, Stacey Abrams? He's cheating. That's exactly what he's doing. And what makes this situation even more peculiar than it already is, is that Brian Kemp refuses to recuse himself from the position of Georgia's Secretary of State. And this is a problem because he actually oversees the integrity, or lack thereof, of this election. So if there are complaints about cheating and voter suppression, who do you take that up with? You take that up with Brian Kemp. So, if Stacey Abrams wants to file a complaint about what Brian Kemp is doing in this race, she'd go to the Secretary of State. But would you look at that? Brian Kemp is the Secretary of State. So, he can do what he wants and go virtually unchecked. There's no recourse for Stacey Abrams. There's no recourse for voters. This is someone who is cheating 
And the person who oversees the integrity of the election is the Secretary of State, and he's also that individual as well. So here's what he's doing in particular. As PR Lockhart of Vox explains, at least 53,000 voter registration applications, the large majority of them from black voters, are being held for additional screening in the state of Georgia, potentially removing the ability for a significant number of people to vote in the November election, the Associated Press reported this week. The news has ignited a controversy closely tied to Georgia's upcoming gubernatorial election, with voting rights advocates arguing that Republicans are attempting to suppress the black vote and rig the election just weeks before Election Day. According to the AP, Kemp's office is holding the applications because they were flagged in the state's exact match process. Under the system, information on a voter application must exactly match data on file with the state's Department of Driver Services or the Social Security Administration. If the information does not match, often due to things like a misspelled name, a middle name not being fully written out, or a missing hyphen, an application is held for additional screening and the applicant is notified and given a period to correct their information. These concerns mostly revolve around Brian Kemp, Georgia's current Secretary of State and Republican candidate for governor. Kemp refuses to leave office before the election, prompting voting rights advocates, civil rights groups and the campaign of his Democratic opponent, Stacey Abrams, to argue that it's inappropriate for the man in charge of the voting systems in the state to continue to manage those systems while running for office. Kemp's opponents argue that the pending applications prove he cannot be trusted to oversee the election. Now, in addition to him instituting this exact match voter suppression tactic, they're also being sued in Georgia by the ACLU for implementing something else known as signature match. So as the ACLU reports, we're suing over Georgia's signature match law. It allows election officials to reject absentee ballots if they think signatures in a voter's paperwork don't match. Voters aren't given prior notice or a chance to fix the issue. So it's obvious here that Brian Kemp is going out of his way to rig this election. And if you're surprised by what's happening in Georgia, don't be. This is a go-to Republican tactic. If they're worried about losing, or even if they just feel like doing it, they will institute the most draconian, undemocratic voter suppression tactics that we've seen in the country. In fact, when you go to a study from the Daily Beast, they actually found five types of voter suppression laws that Republican-run states often enact, all of which disproportionately disenfranchised people of color in poor communities. So this includes closing polling places, especially in communities of color, this also includes purging voters off the rolls for arbitrary reasons. Now, this isn't something that just happens in red states. We saw this in New York in 2016. But Republicans, of course, do it as well. Uh, we see them barring felons from voting. Even if you committed a crime, that doesn't mean that sh you should lose the right to vote, but they do it. It's a voter suppression tactic. They institute these voter ID laws, which are specifically designed to target people of color. And if you don't want to take my word for it, then you can look to the legal case that determined that that's what's happening. And also, they are eliminating early voting in states across the country. And the same article from the Daily Beast reports that they found since 2013 that Republican-controlled states have closed more than a thousand polling places in nine states alone. So the question is, what are they afraid of? The answer? It's easy. Voters. You see, this is what happens. Every single election is going to hinge 
on how much voters come out to vote. If there's a lot more voters that turn out, then most of the time, that means the Democrat is going to win. If voters stay home and turnout is low and less people vote, that almost always overwhelmingly will benefit the Republican. So by suppressing the vote, maybe it's the case that a few Republican voters might be caught up in that net as well. But by and large, this allows them to disenfranchise people who most of the time wouldn't vote Republican, which is why they do it, which is why we're seeing voter ID laws enacted in all types of red states. And when we call them out for it, when we say, hey, what this is doing in practice is it is disenfranchising people of color. You are suppressing the vote of minorities. Even if you don't want to believe that that's what they're doing, that's what happens in practice. And what do they do? They say, oh, well, you're, you're using identity politics. No, Republicans are using identity politics by suppressing the votes of people of color. That's identity politics. So I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the other states that currently are enacting voter suppression laws in order to win, specifically to win by benefiting Republicans. So it's also happening in the state of Nevada. And as Colin Kombacher reports, at least 90,000 voters were purged from Nevada's voter rolls over the years 2016 and 2017, according to a list provided to media by the Nevada Secretary of State. The Palace Investigative Fund announced the release of said list in a Monday press release. The group's release notes, rather than face our complaints in federal court, Nevada's Republican Secretary of State Barbara K. Sagofsky on Thursday turned over the list of every Nevada voter whose registration Savosky canceled in 2016 and 2017. The fund is releasing the names of the 90,000 residents of Las Vegas and Reno, Clark and Washoe counties removed because of evidence they've moved. According to the fund's press release, the voters in question were removed from the Silver State's voter rolls by way of a postcard removal scheme. Similar methods of removing voters from voter rolls have been enacted by several Republican secretaries of state across the country in recent years. Postcard-style purges in the following fashion noted in a previous Law & Crime article about similarly alleged shenanigans in Alabama. The state sends postcards to voters. The original postcards were not forwardable, meaning if a voter moved, the postcard wouldn't follow them to their new address. Postcards that came back as non-deliverable resulted in the state sending a forwardable postcard to the old address. If the second card was not returned within a certain time frame, then voters were moved to inactive status. As many voting rights advocates have pointed out, such revisions of voter rolls disproportionately impact poor and minority voters, who tend to move around more often than their white and wealthy counterparts. The Monday press release claims, however, that many of the voters removed from Nevada's rolls in this fashion actually hadn't moved at all. So do you understand what's happening? Do you see what they're doing? They look at trends like moving more frequently that occurs disproportionately in uh, marginalized communities. And they say, oh, well, since people of color move around a lot, well, if we kind of do some shenanigans with the vote there, then maybe we can eliminate a lot of those votes against us. If we require these voter ID laws, something that would disproportionately impact poor communities and communities of color, well, then that could eliminate a lot of votes for us. So this is what Republicans do. They play as dirty as you can imagine, and they don't even care. Just how 
poorly this reflects on democracy. They don't even care if they are resorting to tactics that we see in authoritarian regimes. They don't care. Their goal is to suppress the vote and win by all means. It doesn't matter if you're not hearing out the voices of certain individuals. The goal is to win, and you win by suppressing their vote. If 100% of the country voted, it would probably be the case that Republicans would never win elections. But they know that they win when voters don't turn out. And a way that they can guarantee that less voters turn out is by suppressing those votes. They don't care that this is decreasing the legitimacy of Congress. They just don't care. And if you decide to protest this and act out, what are they going to do? They're going to bat you over the head with this civility argument. How can you be this divisive and protest me? How uncivilized are you? You're a mob. I mean, Republicans are the biggest threat to democracy in the country. And until we start realizing this and coming together with a plan, and when I say us, anyone who cares about democracy, then they will continue to do this with impunity. Over the course of the weekend, President Donald Trump sat down for an interview with Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes, and this was by far one of the most bizarre, unhinged interviews I think he's given yet. And to me, he really came off as a prepubescent child during this interview. And it's not like that's some new phenomenon, because I think he always tends to act pretty bratty and childish. But I feel as though he's deteriorating throughout the course of his presidency. He's becoming more childlike as he gets older. And I say this because when you think of the characteristics associated with a bratty child, I think that they were similar to Donald Trump's behavior here. I mean, he was confrontational. He was overly defensive, evasive. His statements were often contradictory. He gave irrational justifications for his bad behavior. And some of the answers that he gave were just downright laughable. So I honestly don't know where to begin with this interview. It was relatively long. So we'll just start here with Trump's characterization of the world that we live in. This is the most deceptive, vicious world it is vicious, it's full of lies, deceit, and deception. Now, that's not necessarily a disagreeable assertion per se, but coming from Donald Trump, I mean, that just strikes me as hypocritical because he is one of the main individuals that is perpetuating the viciousness that we see today in American politics. So it's ironic to me that he has the audacity to talk about the viciousness of American politics as he is the one that is spreading all of the viciousness. Case in point, just a couple of weeks ago, he mocked Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Now, he was actually asked about this during the interview, and his justification for this was downright unacceptable. You mimicked her. Had I not made that speech, we would not have won. I was just saying she didn't seem to know anything. No, you and you're trying to destroy a life of a man who has been extraordinary. Why did you have to make fun of her? I didn't really make fun. Well, they were laughing. What I said is, the person that we're talking about didn't know the year, the time, the place. Professor Blasey Ford got before the Senate and, and was asked, what's the worst moment? And she said, when the two boys laughed at me, at my expense. Okay. And then I watched you mimic her, and thousands of people were laughing at her. They can do what they, I, I will tell you, this, the way now Justice Kavanaugh was treated has become a big factor in the midterms. Have you seen what's gone on with the polls? But did you have to 
Well, I think she was treated with great respect. I'll, I know, I'll but, be honest. But, but do you think there you are those that think she with, shouldn't have been? Do you think you treated her with great respect? I think so. Yeah, I did. But yeah. you seem to be saying that she lied. Uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to get into it because we won. It doesn't matter. Well, we won. It doesn't matter. Well, we won. That was absolutely absurd. In response to Leslie Stahl asking him why he mimicked Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, he says, quote, had I not made that speech, he would have won or he would not have won. What? If you didn't mock Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, then Kavanaugh would not have been confirmed to the Supreme Court. That's honestly what he's saying here. Okay, so let's parse this out a little bit. What does it take to get Kavanaugh confirmed? Or what was it that ultimately secured his confirmation? Well, by and large, it came down to five undecided senators. And of those five, three ultimately ended up voting to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. That includes Joe Manchin, Jeff Flake, and Susan Collins. Now, for what he's saying to be true, it would have had to have been the case that <laughs> those undecided senators, the, the thing that put them over the edge was seeing Donald Trump mock Dr. Ford. So they were undecided before, but when Susan Collins saw the way that President Trump mocked her like a buffoon, then she thought, oh, now it all makes sense to me. I have to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. How'd you get there? I don't remember. Where is the place? I don't remember. One week later. The allegations failed to meet the more likely than not standard. 24 hours later. The nomination of Brett M. Kavanaugh of Maryland to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. <laughs> Makes sense. Now, we know why that's demonstrably false, because these senators, in fact, made public comments saying that they were against Donald Trump mocking Christine Blasey Ford. And according to Burgess Everett of Politico, Joe Manchin called Trump's mocking of Dr. Ford awful and very wrong. And additionally, Everett adds Republican senators Susan Collins of Maine, Jeff Flake of Arizona, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska all criticized Trump sharply for his remarks, reactions taken as unhelpful by GOP leaders. So if anything, him mocking Christina Blasey Ford made it more difficult for these five undecided senators, particularly the three that voted to confirm Kavanaugh in the end, to justify this vote to their constituents. But Trump is saying, no, if I didn't mock her and be a dick, Kavanaugh would have been defeated. That makes no sense. It's such an idiotic thing to say. And I get it. It's coming from Donald Trump. He spews nonsense on a daily basis, but still, he's the president of the United States. What he says matters. Now, he also downplayed the extent of his mocking. And in true Trumpian fashion, he said the opposite of what was actually true in reality. He said that he actually felt as if he treated her with respect. And he ended by saying, look, I'm not going to get into it because we won. It doesn't matter unreal i don't understand how any reasonable human being can look at this guy look at his behavior his overall demeanor and think i like that guy i'm gonna support him i'm gonna join the mega train it it just honestly doesn't make any sense to me now leslie stall she did a fairly decent job in my opinion but she did throw a soft ball at donald trump just right down the center at him and she asked him you know, an easy question. 
what did you learn the most from being president? And on the easiest question possible where he just could have espoused platitudes and been non-confrontational, well, he still took the time to make a fool of himself and he critiqued media in a really ironic way. I never knew how dishonest the media was. I, I, I really mean it. I'm not saying that as a soundbite. I never I, I can, knew how I'm, dishonest. I'm going to change the subject again. Well, no, but even the way you asked me a question, like about separation. Yeah. When I say Obama did it, you don't want to talk about no, it. No, I disagree, but I don't want to have that fight with you. Hey, All it's right, okay. We'll have another fight with you. Leslie, okay. it's okay. In the meantime, right. I'm president and you're not. I'm president and you're not. I'm president and you're not. Who says things like this? <laughs> you know, you'd think that... With Donald Trump being president now for nearly two years, we'd get used to his shenanigans. But the fact that a reality television star has been our president now for almost two years, it doesn't make it any less weird. It doesn't make it seem as if we are not living in the twilight zone. I haven't been desensitized to his demeanor, his tactics, and his overall behavior. It's still very weird to see a gigantic man-child in the White House say something that is so childish. Well, I'm president, you're not. I mean, I, I honestly don't even know what to say. Now, he addresses what he's learned by saying, I never knew how dishonest the media was. Now, there are problems with cable news. I am an individual who often criticizes them, and it's not necessarily because they're dishonest, even though that's part of the problem, it's because they're too corporatized. So corporate-owned media, they have specific agendas. They don't want to cover things that might get in the way of what their owners want. Net neutrality being an example. They don't want to talk about anything that might jeopardize the relationship that they have with advertisers, which is why they often stay away from war since defense contractors do advertise on mainstream news networks. But think about Donald Trump and how odd it is for him to bemoan the media for being dishonest while the number one news network in the country does propaganda for him 24 hours a day and defends his actions even when what he does is indefensible. And not only does Fox News defend and downplay Trump's worst acts, but he can call in to any of their shows at any time of the day in order to disseminate a particular message. I mean, to lambast the dishonest media while simultaneously excluding Fox News from that debate is just absurd. It's a joke. Now, think about the reason he gave. The example he states is, well, look, just an example during this interview. You asked me about child separation, and I tried to tell you about Obama having the same policy, and you didn't want to talk about it. Well, the reason why she didn't want to talk about that, Donald Trump, is because you're factually incorrect. President Obama is not being criticized for having a family separation policy because he didn't have a family separation policy. Now, that's not to say that his immigration policies weren't morally reprehensible and indefensible, but to suggest that Obama had a family separation policy that's on par with Trump's is intellectually dishonest. Now, can you look to certain Obama-era policies like the Alien Transfer Exit Program and say that that resulted in separation of families in some instances, maybe? Of course you can say that. Can you say that Obama choosing to deport certain members of an undocumented family separated families? 
Yes, you can also say that as well. I think that that's fair. But can you say that Obama's immigration policies were akin to Donald Trump's family separation policies in any way? You cannot say that if you want to be honest. Trump was separating all families as they arrived at the border as a deterrence. It was specifically designed to be cruel in order to dissuade other immigrants from trying to cross the border. And they were treated as criminals. They were detained not for administrative purposes. They were criminally detained, which is a big difference. And furthermore, Trump's administration is forcing toddlers to defend themselves in court. He's literally diverting funds from cancer research and HIV and AIDS programs in order to fund new shelters for immigrant children who his administration is still detaining. So is it fair to criticize President Obama for his unnecessarily cruel immigration policies? 100%. I do too. If you want to say that Obama's immigration policies were xenophobic and cruel, I'm with you. But at the same time, you have to be nuanced and acknowledge that President Obama's immigration policies, no matter how cruel they were, never reached the level of Trump's immigration policies. His zero-tolerance immigration policy program was specifically designed to break apart families. So even if it's the case that Barack Obama's immigration policies indirectly resulted in some instances in families being separated. The goal of Trump's policy, at least the way it was designed, made it so that way all families that arrived at the border were separated. Those are two very different things. So this false equivalence is absolutely unacceptable. And that's why people are more harsh on Trump than they are on Obama. It's because even though each successive administration has gotten more and more cruel, the jump from Obama to Trump was exponentially more cruel. So that's why we have to be realistic and nuanced about just how cruel Donald Trump's immigration policies are. Now, I want to get on to the next portion. So Leslie Stahl asked him about Kim Jong-un and why he's going out of his way to be buddy-buddy and be an ass-kisser to Kim Jong-un. And his response was... It was weird to me. I get along with him really well. I have a good energy with him. I have a good chemistry with him. Look at the horrible threats that were made. No more threats. No more threats. He I'm presides over a cruel kingdom of repression, gulags, starvation, uh, reports that he had his half-brother assassinated, slave labor, public executions. This is a guy you I love. I know all these things. I mean, I'm not a baby. I know, I know all these but things. why do you love that guy? Look, look, mm. I, have, I, I like, I get along with him, okay? I get along with him, okay? That was so weird and just, frankly, it was pretty creepy. I get along with him, okay? <laughs> I get along with him, okay? Why are you breathing so heavily to describe the situation? I. <laughs> so here's how he justifies... Um, some of the things he's been saying about Kim Jong-un. Look at the horrible threats that were made. No more threats. No more threats. Now, obviously, that's great. I'm glad that they're no longer exchanging threats of nuclear annihilation on Twitter every other day. I think that we can all admit that that's preferable, that this is preferable to before. But here's the thing that's really odd to me about Donald Trump. I'm going to show you a video of him describing 
the love that him and Kim Jong-un suddenly have for each other. And then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters. And they're great letters. We fell in love. Yay! Now, that's just one of the many instances of him talking about Kim Jong-un in a really positive way. And to be fair to him, I think he was probably being half serious in that particular clip. But here's the thing that's really striking about Donald Trump is that there's this dichotomy with him for every single issue. He he can't just be neutral on Kim Jong-un, right? He has to either threaten to bomb him every other day or he has to literally profess his love for Kim Jong-un. A reasonable person would say, look, I think that the status quo where we attacked each other and exchanged threats every single day, that wasn't working, but let's agree that even if I disagree with your horrendous policies, with the humanitarian disaster that is North Korea, that we're just not going to attack each other. But instead, Trump takes it the extra mile and jumps to the opposite end of the spectrum where he's praising Kim Jong-un and talks about the love letters that Kim Jong-un is writing to him. You don't have to do that. And look, I'm someone who has praised Donald Trump. I've tried to be fair in saying, look, I, I would prefer this. I don't care how much he kisses Kim Jong-un's ass if it means that we're not going to have a war, if it means we will avert nuclear annihilation, right? But at the same time, he's kind of inadvertently legitimizing Kim Jong-un, which, I mean... You don't want to do this is an objectively horrible human being and you don't have to normalize Kim Jong-un just to de-escalate tensions. You can still acknowledge that Kim Jong-un is a murderous dictator who keeps some of his citizens in literal concentration camps and also not want to bomb him. But instead, what does Donald Trump do? He praises him and just goes out of his way to do it, which is weird. And I think that the criticism of Donald Trump for praising Kim Jong-un and unwittingly legitimizing him, it is warranted. Now, again, I'm going to say it again. I would prefer him to fillet Kim Jong-un on a daily basis than to have him attacking him on Twitter and threatening to bomb him via Twitter. But at the same time, it's just, you have to notice that Trump is either hot or cold. He can't have, find no middle ground like reasonable people would. He either has to love Kim Jong-un or hate Kim Jong-un. And that is extremely weird. It's why I think his behavior is childish. Now, getting to the portion of the interview on climate change, let's look at what he previously said about climate change on numerous occasions. So in 2012, he argued that the concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese. In 2014, he questioned if we're still spending money on the quote global warming hoax in all caps and there are numerous examples of him denying the reality of climate change but in this next clip he's going to walk back his previous comments i think something's happening something's changing and it'll change back again i don't think it's a hoax i think there's probably a difference but it, i don't know that it's man-made i will say this um I don't want to give trillions and trillions of dollars. I don't want to lose millions and millions of jobs. So the takeaway in my view from that clip was that even when he's being the most reasonable, his position is still unreasonable because he's kind of moving the goalpost here. And even if we can prove, which we have proven this, that climate change is anthropogenic and humans are in fact 
catalyzing climate change, well, he's not sure that he would want to take action if it means that there would be negative economic consequences. So even if he seems like he's being a little bit more reasonable here, his position is still unreasonable because there was an IPCC report, it was a meta-analysis released last week that said we have 12 years to act to avoid a climate catastrophe. If we don't act within 12 years, then we won't be able to keep the overall global increase to two, under 2 degrees Celsius, which would be a catastrophe. So that's completely unacceptable. He's still not doing what he needs to do. And he also withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord. So even if he is kind of coming around to the idea that climate change isn't a hoax, He's still 100% wrong here. So overall, I just showed you some clips from the interview. It's a little bit longer, but those are the portions that stood out to me. But by and large, Donald Trump is becoming stupider as the pres presidency um, goes on. I said before about my theory that, you know, it, it, generally speaking, when you look at a president when they're elected... And pictures, when you look at a picture of a president on Inauguration Day and you look at a picture, you juxtapose that with a picture of him, you know, at the end of his presidency, you really see how much they've aged because the presidency has taken a toll on them. With Donald Trump, he hasn't necessarily aged, but he is growing stupider by the day. So it is finally the case that the United States may be starting to rethink their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Because as you all know, we've been longtime allies with Saudi Arabia. It's been an alliance that has formed due to a mutual hatred of Iran, but also it's an alliance that is monetarily beneficial. We supply Saudi Arabia with weapons and they supply us with oil. But that's all starting to maybe change. People are starting to re-examine this relationship or at least think about re-examining this relationship due to the events over the last week with journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the situation, well, let's go to an article from Al Jazeera who explains on October 2nd, Khashoggi flew to Istanbul and entered the Saudi consulate to obtain documents that would seal his marriage to his Turkish fiance, Hatice Senges. To date, he has not been heard from again, with Turkish security announcing on Saturday that they believe he has been killed. We believe that the murder was premeditated and the body was subsequently moved out of the consulate, a Turkish official told the Reuters news agency. Now the footage that you're seeing is the last video we have of him being alive. You can see him entering the embassy but never leaving. Now the reason why this is a big deal is because he is a journalist who's also a critic of the Saudi regime. So if they in fact killed him and all signs point to that being the case, then they're killing a political enemy. And internationally, that is politically unacceptable, even for the most egregious regimes. Now, that's pretty much the basic rundown of the story. There's been additional developments. Uh, CNN recently reported that there are two sources who are saying Saudi Arabia is considering coming out and saying, yeah, we actually did kill him, but inadvertently in a botched interrogation. Also, there are reports that his body was cut into pieces. I mean, the details are just so disturbing, so gruesome. And the question is, if Saudi Arabia did in fact do this, then why? And really, my response would be, why wouldn't they? 
we've formed an alliance with them that's so strong that they essentially feel empowered to do whatever they want internationally. They're literally carrying out a genocide in Yemen, killing thousands of innocent civilians. They've blocked medicine and food from entering the country. This is an international atrocity. And nobody wants to say anything because they're not only receiving support from the United States to carry out this genocide, but we're the ones who are giving them the weapons to continue with this genocide. Now, there are some individuals in both parties, like Bernie Sanders... And also Mike Lee, who's a Tea Party conservative, but to his credit, he is on the right side of history here. They are trying to promote this narrative that we absolutely have got to stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia because what they're doing is they are committing a genocide in Yemen with the weapons that we're giving them. And individuals who have maintained that stance, like Bernie Sanders, are using this incident as leverage to kind of influence Donald Trump's administration to actually take a stand and stop supplying them with weapons. It's clear we cannot have an ally who murders in cold blood in their own consulate uh, a, a critic. Uh, a dissident. That is unacceptable. Uh, as you may know, a number of months ago, along with a, a conservative Republican, uh, Mike Lee of Utah, I introduced uh, a resolution which got 44 votes, which said that the time is now for the United States to get out of the Saudi-led war in Yemen, mm -hmm. which is causing a horrible humanitarian disaster there. So I think one of the strong things that we could do is not only stop military sales, not only put sanctions on Saudi Arabia, but most importantly, get out of this terrible, terrible war in Yemen led by the Saudis. That is the correct response. But I do think that if we are going to go as far as to put sanctions on Saudi Arabia, we have to be careful because there's a lot of warmongers in the Republican Party that are going to capitalize on us wanting to stop Saudi Arabia from doing bad things. So Lindsey Graham, for example, is already beating the war drums against Saudi Arabia. I mean, you can go from zero to 100. He formerly was a Saudi Arabian apologist who defended them, and now he wants to invade them. MBS figure is, to me, toxic. He can never be a world leader on the world stage. So what does the president do? Sanctions? It's up to the president. But what I would do, I know what I'm going to do. We're going to sanction the hell out of Saudi Arabia. You know. We deal with bad people all the time, but this is in our face. I feel personally offended. They have nothing but contempt for us. Why would you put a guy like me and the president in this box right. after all the president has done? This guy's got to go. Saudi Arabia, if you're listening, there are a lot of good people you can choose, but MBS has tainted your country and tainted himself. In other words, he thinks that we should do regime change. If you want to get rid of a leader and presumably install someone so that way this, you know, unholy alliance can continue, if you will, then that's that's something that could catalyze regime change. So we do have to be careful and we have to control the narrative, but Bernie Sanders is right here. I think that this is the right move. And honestly, it's something that I would expect Bernie Sanders to say anyway, but to the credit of other lawmakers, there is this bipartisan consensus that's starting to emerge around the issue of Saudi Arabia and this alliance that we have with them. And as Alex Emmons of The Intercept explains, Massachusetts Representative Jim McGovern, the leading Democrat on the powerful House Rules Committee, on Tuesday introduced a bill that threatens to sever the decades-old security relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. The bill, which is co-sponsored by six Democrats and two Republicans, is the latest outrage response from 
from lawmakers on Capitol Hill to the disappearance and suspected murder of prominent Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Specifically, McGovern's bill would ban all arms sales and military cooperation with Saudi Arabia unless the Secretary of State certifies that the Saudi government and its agents did not order or direct Khashoggi's disappearance or killing. It would also suspend the security relationship between the two countries, except to protect or evacuate U.S. citizens and diplomatic personnel in the kingdom. The bill would also require a detailed report from the Secretary of State about Khashoggi's status. So, little by little, we're seeing this narrative change, right? People are starting to question this relationship that we have with Saudi Arabia. Now, look, it should have happened a lot sooner. They've been carrying out a genocide. Thousands of innocent civilians have died, while a lot of lawmakers sat idly by. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So, I'm glad that we're starting to see a change in the mindset of American lawmakers, but the question is, will the party in power, will the president specifically, who's the commander-in-chief, actually do anything about this? And when he was asked about this, he made it very clear where his priorities lie. I would not be in favor of stopping a country from spending $110 billion, which is an all-time record, and letting Russia have that money and letting China have that money, because all they're going to do is say, that's okay, we don't have to buy it from Boeing, we don't have to buy it from Lockheed, we don't have to buy it from Raytheon and all these great companies. We'll buy it from Russia, we'll buy it from China. So what good does that do us? There are other things we can do. Khashoggi is not a United States citizen, is that right? Or is that right? He's a permanent resident, okay. We don't like it, John. We don't like it, and we don't like it even a little bit. But as to whether or not we should stop $110 billion from being spent in this country, knowing they have four or five alternatives, two very good alternatives, that would not be acceptable to me. Okay, but we're looking for the answer, and I think probably you'll have an answer sooner than people think. In other words, you know, they might have killed a journalist, but are we really going to stop selling them weapons? just because they killed a journalist? I mean, they might have been carrying out a genocide in Yemen with our support, but is that really a reason for us to stop selling them weapons that contribute to the profits of defense contractors like Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin? Yes, that's exactly what should happen. You're putting profits over people. And yet, your administration maintains that you care about human rights. I mean, it's a fucking joke at this point that this individual, who's the president, can say with a straight face, Oh, I don't know if I actually want to do anything and stop selling them weapons because the whole, whole money. Fuck you, Donald Trump. I mean, this is just enraging. It's so enraging. The president of the United States, who wants us to believe that he cares about human rights, is saying, you know, I don't really care about human rights so long as we can continue profiting off of Saudi Arabia. It's morally reprehensible. It is morally reprehensible. And it shows that Donald Trump has no moral core. So, the good news about this story, if you can see any light through this dark tunnel, is that this incident is getting us to rethink our relationship with Saudi Arabia it's just sad that it took this long and that, you know, a genocide in Yemen and thousands of civilian deaths isn't what made us rethink our relationship. But nonetheless, putting that human face to Jamal Khashoggi, I guess that really mattered. And finding out what happened, getting justice for Jamal does in fact matter. Over the last week, USA Today published an attack on Medicare for All 
by someone known as, who is this? Uh, oh, current president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Now, the article itself is titled, Democrats' Medicare for All Plan Will Demolish Promises to Seniors. And in the subtitle, he argues, the Democrats want to outlaw private health care plans, taking away freedom to choose plans while letting anyone cross our border. We must win this. Okay, so by just looking at the title, I already have a number of issues. <laughs> This, this is going to be long. It's going to be a really long video. Um, first of all, are we really supposed to believe that Donald Trump took the time out of his day to stop watching Fox News and write an article? Don, I've seen your tweets. This doesn't match your writing style. Even though, you know, it's not the best ghost-written article in the world, it's clear that it's not Donald Trump. Uh, there's no... Caps. I mean, half of this would be in all caps if it were Donald Trump. He'd end sentences with sad exclamation and whatnot. So it, this isn't Donald Trump, right? Now, in the title and subtitle, there's numerous things that stand out as being obviously false. So I want to address that first. So if he claims it's Democrats who would harm Medicare, good luck convincing the public that it's not your party who actually wants to, quote, demolish Medicare, because right after your party passed tax cuts for the rich, Speaker Paul Ryan proposed cuts to Medicare in order to fund tax cuts for the rich. And if you think that that example goes too far back, then I've got one from October 16th of Mitch McConnell saying that it's going to be really important for the party to cut programs like Social Security and Medicare in order to solve the deficit crisis that they created. Now, Trump also says that their plan would outlaw private health care plans. That's just factually incorrect, even if I think it should outlaw private health care plans. Now, he also claims that this plan will incentivize undocumented immigrants crossing the border. Now, let's just be extra kind to Donald Trump here for argument's sake and assume that having Medicare for all will in fact attract undocumented immigrants. So are we supposed to not guarantee health care for every single American because you and your sycophantic xenophobic supporters don't like the idea of immigrants coming into the country? We're supposed to say, okay, well, you got me there. Uh, we can't have immigrants wanting to come into the country, so I guess we probably shouldn't have Medicare for all, and we should make the country as shitty as possible in order to dissuade others from coming in who we don't like, who are brown. I mean, fuck out of here. What a stupid argument to make. How is that going to persuade anyone? By Trump's logic, we wouldn't have paved roads, we wouldn't have a fire department, we would make this country shittier in order to make sure that nobody would want to come here. And it's just, it's an absurd stand to take. And he also says we must win this. Well, guess what? You have the plan you want currently. So long as the status quo doesn't change, you win. You win by default. We don't have Medicare for all. And that's what you want. So you are winning. So, I mean, <laughs> look, there's so much in this article that I take issue with that it would honestly, uh, like I honestly considered going sentence by sentence and breaking that down, but that would just take me forever. So I'm just going to isolate certain portions of this and talk about why they're not only intentionally disingenuous and misleading, but flat out wrong. And he even 
links to some articles to validate his point that prove him wrong. So the first paragraph I want to get to here, he states, dishonestly called Medicare for all, the Democratic proposal would establish a government-run single-payer healthcare system that eliminates all private and employer-based healthcare plans and would cost an astonishing $32.6 trillion during its first 10 years. Now, first of all, I don't understand how he can do mental gymnastics to the point to assert that Medicare for all, calling it Medicare for all, is dishonest. That's literally the point of the fucking program. We take our current Medicare system that everyone loves, improve it, expand it to everyone, and it's Medicare for all. Nobody's left behind. There's 100% universal coverage. Healthcare will now be free at the point of delivery under the system. How is it dishonest to call it Medicare for all? I mean, it makes no sense, but he cites that $32.6 trillion statistic and he links to this. Now, can you guess what study he's linking to to validate his point? Well, of course, when you click that link, it takes you to the Koch-funded study by the Mercatus Center. What a surprise. Now, first of all, he's not going to tell you that in that same study, it actually shows that by and large, Americans would save $2 trillion. He's not going to tell you about that portion of the study because it doesn't prove his point, but when he says that Medicare for all would cost 32 $2.6 trillion. That's such a disingenuous, misleading way to frame it that he's just straight up lying. I don't know how else to describe it because $32.6 trillion, that's the increase in federal spending needed to cover Medicare for all. It's not the total cost of Medicare for all. Our current system costs about 59 point uh, something trillion. We'll just say 60 trillion for argument's sake. But Medicare for all is 2 trillion less than that. And if you increase federal spending by 32.6 trillion, and that's a very, very uh, conservative estimate. Um, there are other studies that say it's a lot less than that, sometimes even half than that. But if you say that Medicare for all would cost $32.6 trillion, what he's hoping you'll take away from that is that the government is going to have to raise $32 trillion in order to pay for Medicare for all. But that's just not true. The government is already spending trillions of dollars on health care every single year. They're paying for the Affordable Care Act, the Children's Health Insurance Program, Medicaid, Medicare. They're providing private companies with government subsidies. And we'd simply take the money that we're already spending on health care and put that towards Medicare for all. And when you do that slightly raise taxes and once you account for all the savings associated with medicare for all it's not that difficult to fully fund it so he says medicare for all would cost 32.6 trillion dollars no that would be the federal increase so it's we can't afford not to have medicare for all because we pay more for worse results compared to other industrialized nations and furthermore, under Medicare for All, individual families would save thousands of dollars every single year if we moved to this system. So he's trying to fearmonger by being disingenuous about Medicare for All when he clearly doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And it's just infuriating. Now, I do want to get to the next paragraph that I take issue with. So he states, as a candidate, I promised that we would protect coverage for patients with pre-existing conditions and create new health care insurance options that would lower premiums. I have kept that promise and we are now seeing health insurance premiums coming down. Now, let's just take a moment here to humor him and follow the links that he provides you with in order to validate his claim. So if you go to the link where he says that he vowed to protect patients with pre-existing conditions as a candidate, well, that takes you to a Washington Post article where they actually 
attacked Trump. It's titled President Trump's Flip-Flop on Coverage for Pre-Existing Health Conditions. And it literally explains how his administration is now arguing in court that the provision in Obamacare that protects patients with pre-existing conditions is actually unconstitutional. But to his credit, if you go further down the article, it does state that he <laughs> did vow to protect pre-existing conditions as a candidate. But I mean, for the most part, the crux of the article is this author shaming Donald Trump for flip-flopping on wanting to protect patients with pre-existing conditions. So this is an incredible cell phone, and I can't believe that he actually linked you to this article, which is further evidence that this was not Donald Trump that wrote this article. I think this has got to be a staffer that linked to this to troll him. Why would you link to an article to prove your point only to find that that article... Uh, attacks Donald Trump, justifiably so, mind you, but it does attack him nonetheless. I mean, I can't believe he linked to that. I was I was laughing when I first saw that. So obviously, since his administration is currently arguing in court that pre-existing conditions are unconstitutional, meaning that they're against it, then that means that he violated his promise and his party does not want to protect patients with pre-existing conditions. And I didn't even get to the vote last week where the Republican Party actually voted to kill a bill that would have protected people with pre-existing conditions. So clearly, they're against helping people with pre-existing conditions. Now, he also makes the claim that insurance premiums are coming down. Now, that's odd because, you know, what's the evidence for that? Because everything that we've seen thus far shows that insurance premiums are increasing under Donald Trump. Well, if you follow his link again, it just takes you to a quote from HHS Secretary Alex Azar saying that they're going to come down in 2019. Well, that's not evidence. You said in this article that insurance premiums are starting to come down and then as evidence you link to your HHS secretary saying, oh, they're going to come down in 2019. Someone saying something is not evidence that that's actually happening. It, you can actually talk to Americans and ask them, hey, how much has your monthly health insurance premium increased since Trump took office? And most likely they tell you by quite a bit. The reason why he couldn't provide you with evidence is because insurers are warning that monthly healthcare premiums will likely increase in 2019, even if Donald Trump is wanting you to believe that they're going to come down. And this is because Donald Trump suspended a subsidy to insurers. So that's why they're going up. Also, employer-sponsored health insurance is also expected to rise in 2019, and substantially so, mind you. So, I mean, we've gotten two paragraphs in, I've read you the title, and it's already riddled with factual errors. Now, getting to another paragraph. I also made a solemn promise to our great seniors to protect Medicare. That is why I am fighting so hard against the Democrats' plan to eviscerate Medicare. So this is a go-to Republican tactic. We say something... And then they say that we said the opposite of that. If something is true, they'll say the opposite is true in order to move the argument in their direction. We say we want to improve and expand Medicare for all. And he says, oh, well, you must want to eviscerate it. I mean, unbelievable. What he's thinking about is maybe the Republican Party who wants to eviscerate it. Because let me remind you again, Mitch McConnell is introducing a plan to cut 
Medicare and social programs like Social Security. It's not Democrats who are proposing this, it's Republicans. Now, getting to a longer paragraph, there's a lot here. He states, the Democrats' plan means that after a life of hard work and sacrifice, seniors would no longer be able to depend on the benefits they were promised by eliminating Medicare as a program for seniors and outlawing the ability of Americans to enroll in private and employer-based plans. The Democratic plan would inevitably lead to the massive rationing of health care. Doctors and hospitals would be put out of business. Seniors would lose access to their favorite doctors. There would be long wait lines for appointments and procedures. Previously covered care would effectively be denied. So literally every single sentence of that paragraph is a lie. It's completely a lie. It's factually incorrect. So Medicare for all would reduce your choices, you wouldn't be able to see the doctor that you want to see. Well, let me ask you this. If you try to see a doctor or a particular specialist that you need to see who's outside of your insurance network, what's going to happen? You're going to have to pay that cost out of pocket. And the cost of healthcare is so high that you're just not going to be able to see the doctor you want to see. So there's actually less choices, contrary to popular belief, under our current private healthcare system. He also claims that, oh, well, these seniors are going to be, you know, they've been paying into this and they're not going to get the benefits. That's the underlying implication. No, they're going to get more benefits because now Medicare, the program that they're all on, would be expanded. So it includes dental, vision, it would cover their hearing aids. So if you're a senior, you shouldn't be concerned that more people will be on Medicare for all. If you're truly a self-interested individual, you should be pushing for Medicare for all alongside all of us because that's going to make Medicare better for you as well. And when he says that doctors and hospitals would be put out of business, that doesn't even make sense. When he says that this would lead to rationing, all healthcare systems, they ration. We would ration based on need as opposed to how much you can pay. This is a point that Kyle Kalinske brings, brings up all the time to his credit, and it's such a great point. We're already rationing. We're rationing now based on money, but if we move to Medicare for all, we'd ration based on need, which is something that is reasonable because it's a healthcare system. If somebody needs a procedure and they need it quickly, then they'd move up to the line. And he talks about weight lines. That's just not true. You can look to Canada, the UK, any type of modern industrialized nation with a single payer or universal healthcare type system, they're, they're not waiting any longer than we wait. That's such a ridiculous talking point. So he basically just made all of that up to fear monger and lie to you in order to scare you into thinking that, you know, Medicare for all would be bad for you. And look, Voters are self-interested and a self-interested individual is most likely going to be averse to things that change things up substantially, right? So most people, most voters specifically fear change and he's playing on that. Now, I don't think he knows strategically that that's what he's doing because I don't think he's that bright, but that's exactly what's happening here. He also states, in practice, the Democratic Party's so-called Medicare for all would really be Medicare for none. Under the Democrats' plan, today's Medicare would be forced to die. <laughs> Again, the opposite of what he's saying is true. Medicare for all would really turn into Medicare for none. But everyone would have it. So what are, you, what are you saying? More people would have it. Everyone in the country would have it. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Under the Democrats' plan, today's Medicare would be forced to die. No, it would be given new life. It would be expanded. It would be healthier than ever. So what is he saying? The only 
thing I could possibly gather based on his previous xenophobic arguments is that, well, you know, if we get Medicare for all and all these undocumented immigrants cross the border and they seek out healthcare treatments, then that's going to bankrupt the system. Well, why don't you ask Canada whether or not their single-payer system turned into Medicare for none? Ask them how little people are getting Medicare. They're going to laugh in your fucking face. Ask them how many people are dying and going bankrupt due to a lack of health insurance. They're going to laugh in your fucking face because that doesn't happen. Last paragraph I'm going to get to here. The truth is that the centrist Democratic Party is dead. The new Democrats are radical socialists who want to model America's economy after... Venezuela. Venezuela. Of course, he'd bring up... um. Venezuela, because why would you cite what we actually want, which is, you know, a model akin to Scandinavia, but what he's saying is factually incorrect. Centrist Democrats are still in control. They hold leadership positions, and even supporting the position of Medicare for all, that doesn't necessarily mean someone is far left or radicalized. This is a fairly moderate stance, at least internationally. When you go to the UK and you ask conservatives, party members and voters, how do you, do you, do you favor getting rid of, you know, your national health system? They tell you, of course we don't. Are you crazy? If you ask your own party in the U.S. Trump, more than half of them now say they support Medicare for all. So to push this idea that it's radical, well, your party must be radical as well. It's completely absurd. And what Trump is doing here is he's making a value argument. He's saying that the tax dollars we're already spending, it shouldn't go towards helping us. It should go towards killing people. Wars, you know, in the Middle East and North Africa, we can spend as much money as we need to on those. But when it comes to healthcare, meh, we just, we just don't have the money. So anyone who makes this case so strongly, and Paul Ryan did the same thing, he recently came out against Medicare for All and spoke out against it by basically just lying through his teeth, anyone who's doing this, blood is on their hands, they are complicit in a predatory for-profit system that leads to the death of civilians, and so long as they don't act, their hands get more and more covered in blood and they don't even care, so... This was such an idiotic attack on Medicare for All, and it certainly was one of the most disingenuous attacks I've seen on it yet. But the fact that he's attacking Medicare for All, it is kind of a good sign, if you can believe that, right? Because we're gaining so much momentum in the battlefield of ideas, as someone like Dave Rubin would say, uh, because they wouldn't feel the need to come out and attack Medicare for All so vociferously. If they didn't think there was a chance to be passing a year or two ago, it wasn't on their radar. They didn't care about Medicare for all. But now that their own party is starting to cross over to our side and agree, yeah, this this program kind of makes sense. Now they're scared. So the fact that Trump and Republicans are going out of their way to attack it is just evidence that we are winning this battle. Bernie Sanders responded to President Donald Trump's op-ed in USA Today about Medicare for All with an op-ed of his own about Medicare for All. So, as you all know, Trump attacked Medicare for All in the most disingenuous, deceitful, and frankly idiotic way. But Bernie Sanders 
basically corrected all of the myths that Donald Trump fabricated in that article. So in Bernie's article titled Trump Lies About Medicare for All and He's Made Healthcare Worse, Bernie Sanders argues Medicare for All is popular because it would save people money and assure them the healthy care they need. Trump's only defense is to lie about my bill. Now what Bernie Sanders does is he dissects Donald Trump's article and he basically explains how what Donald Trump is telling you is bullshit. Medicare for all would be superior to our current system in almost every conceivable way. So what he's telling you, it's nothing but nonsense. Now, I'm going to link you to that article down below if you want to read Bernie Sanders' response. But he addressed, I think, the main points of his article in an interview on CNN with Jake Tapper. And I'm going to show you that instead because I think he did a phenomenal job at really breaking down some of these misconceptions about what Medicare for all would mean for seniors and people currently with private health insurance who like it. One of the big issues that you and many Democrats are talking about on the campaign trail has to do with Medicare for all. Uh, President Trump is trying to rally supporters by criticizing that plan. In the opinion pages of USA Today, uh, the piece is suffused with lies and factual errors. We have fact checked some of them. But let me ask you a question about the president's central argument, which is which is one that you even hear from some uh, progressives, that Medicare for all could lead to worse coverage for many Americans who are happy with the health care coverage that they have right now with the private insurance plan. How, how do you respond to that issue without getting in? We don't have, we, it's only an hour long show. We can't get into every lie President Trump told in that op-ed. But if you could just talk about why should somebody who's happy with their health insurance want Medicare for all? I'll tell you why. Uh, because right now as a nation, as a nation, we are spending twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other country, over $10,000 a year. Family of four, $28,000 a year. That is unsustainable. And yet we end up having, Jake, 30 million people who are uninsured and even more are underinsured. You're talking about people being happy. These are people who are paying the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. These are people with deductibles that are so high that in many cases they can't walk in to the doctor's office. These are people who, if they lose their job today, are not going to have any health coverage at all. Look, here is the bottom line. As a nation, do we do what every other major country on earth does? And that is to understand that health care is a right, not a privilege. Do we spend our money to provide health care for every man, woman, and child, mm -hmm. or to make the drug companies and the insurance companies phenomenally rich while our health care outcomes are worse in many cases than many other countries? So in my view, in the last poll that I saw, on this, Jake, suggests that 70% of the American people understand that Medicare is a good program and it should be expanded to all people. Just one more point here. When Trump lied, he lied about 19 mm. different times in his op-ed attacking me. He said that we are going to weaken Medicare coverage for the elderly. That is an outrageous lie. We expand coverage to include dental care, vision care, and hearing aids. And hearing aids. Yes. Right. And this is really important to seniors. So Bernie Sanders addressed this notion that seniors would somehow suffer if we improved Medicare for them and also expanded it to everyone. But clearly, that's just not true. Under Bernie's Medicare for All plan, seniors would now receive vision, dental, and it would cover the cost of their hearing aids. So clearly, this is superior. If you're a senior, then you absolutely should support Medicare for all. And what's odd to me about this line of attack by Republicans is if you're trying to fearmonger and win over seniors, well, 
I'm sure they're the Republican Party's most loyal voting demographic. So wouldn't you want to win over other individuals and not seniors who are probably going to side with you and vote for you anyway? It doesn't make sense. But by attacking Medicare for all with regard to how it would affect seniors, Donald Trump is opening up this debate to, well, how would seniors, in fact, benefit under Medicare for all? And now... Bernie Sanders is able to come in and monopolize this narrative. And Donald Trump overall, even though I was angry at just how misleading and just deceitful his attack on Medicare for All was, I think it's going to be a net benefit overall because if individuals in the mainstream press like Jake Tapper who attack Medicare for All are having to come out and admit that Donald Trump is a liar, this just benefits our side. It helps us win. Now, another thing that Jake Tapper asked to... um Bernie was, he said, even some progressives are saying Medicare for all could lead to worse coverage for many Americans that are happy with their current private insurance. First of all, if anyone says that Medicare for all could lead to worse coverage for people currently, they're not progressive. And if they are progressive, then they're horribly misled by propaganda that's often disseminated by private insurers. Because currently, if you have a private insurance plan, well, instead of a private insurance company paying for your healthcare, it's going to be the government that pays for your healthcare by your tax dollars. Why would someone think, oh, well, this means I'm not going to be able to see my doctor? That obviously wouldn't be the case. In fact, Medicare for All would open up options for every single person in the country because this will allow you to choose your healthcare provider based on need and experience. Not on, well, are they in my insurance network? How much will it cost? The specialists, you know, will they take Medicare? It's, it's so absurd to me that the, the line of attack that individuals like Donald Trump and Paul Ryan are using is that, well, this is going to lead to less, less choice if we have Medicare for all. Well, we don't have choice right now. Our choices are restricted. If we don't have health insurance, we're pretty much just fucked. But if we do have health insurance, then even then, our choices are restricted. Because if you get sick, you call an ambulance and they take you to a hospital that's not in your insurance network. What happens? You get billed for that, right? Your healthcare provider or your insurance company isn't going to pick up that bill for you. And even if you have a health insurance provider and you go and see a doctor that's in your network, they could choose to deny you that care. I recently shared a GoFundMe that I will link to down below of a citizen who has health insurance, but they are refusing to pay for her cancer treatment. And meanwhile, her cancer is spreading as she tries to battle with them and she had to resort to GoFundMe in order to pay for health care. I mean, this is what we deal with if we have a for-profit health care system. These health insurance companies, they're not driven by the desire to cure the sick and provide you with health care. They're driven by that profit incentive. They have a fiduciary responsibility to increase the value of shareholders. They don't care about health care. They care about money. And so you have to remove that for-profit motive. Otherwise, you will have people that will die or go bankrupt as a result of this for-profit predatory system. Now, when Jake Tapper asks this question, there's this underlying implication that there's going to be some people that are unhappy with the prospect of moving towards Medicare for All if they have private insurance through their employer that they're happy with. Well, first of all, they're going to see pretty quickly how much more money they'd have in their pockets 
because Medicare for All would net save most Americans thousands of dollars if they make less than $200,000 a year. So most Americans are going to have more money in their pocket. That's one of the reasons. But the most important reason as to why individuals who currently like their private health care plan should support Medicare for All is because stop being selfish. Just because you have health care doesn't mean that other Americans have health care. And even if they have insurance, they could be underinsured and they still won't be able to get the care that they need. So this fuck you, I got mine, you're on your own mentality, we've got to stop, okay? Individuals in the mainstream media talk about divisiveness and bringing the country together. Well, one thing that I think most sane, reasonable individuals will agree on is that we shouldn't allow fellow Americans to die or go bankrupt if they get sick and they don't have health insurance. And yes, including MAGA people. If you're in the MAGA cult, if you're a Trump supporter, if you're one of the individuals that called me a faggot or a cuck or a soy boy on one of my videos recently, I want you to have health care too. That's right. Absolutely. I think everyone should have health care because no matter how big of a dick you are, you shouldn't die, you shouldn't go bankrupt due to a lack of insurance or due to being underinsured, having insurance and just having that company refuse to fund the cost of your health care. So overall, I think cracks are starting to appear. I think that there's not really going to be a way for the establishment and the Republican Party and even corporate Democrats to defend the status quo. Our current healthcare system is indefensible and they always talk about the cost of healthcare, you know, with Medicare for all. We can't afford to not go to Medicare for all because it costs us more as individuals and there's also a moral toll that our system takes. People are dying. Morally, we can't afford to not have Medicare for all. So anyone who's against that, they've got to acknowledge that they have blood on their hands as a result because they're trying to prop up a status quo that's leading to people dying and there's nothing more disgusting than that in my opinion Alison Camerata of CNN did another voter panel and I always find these fascinating because she talks with voters and she kind of gives us some examples as to what they're currently thinking and this time she talked with former Trump supporters who decided to leave the MAGA cult and I found what they said fascinating but at the same time incredibly infuriating and i'll tell you why that's the case in a second but first of all in this first clip i'm going to show you so they talk about some of the reasons why they left the mega cult and here's what they have to say you all are the all-important independent voters that so many people are watching for the midterms anthony how are you feeling afraid of what the dictator in the white house he has no empathy for anything. He will never admit when he makes a mistake. What were you imagining when you voted for President Trump? And he said the system is rigged. And he said he was going to be a new sheriff in town. And all he's done is surrounded himself with crooks. How many people have been indicted that were close cahoots with him? And there, in front of the world stage, he looks at Putin and puts his arm around him and says, this is my buddy. The divisiveness in this uh, country right now and the rhetoric coming from the president is a daily exhausting thing. I worry that the dictator, the wannabe dictator in the White House, will make it where we don't even have any more elections. I mean, he he is like siding with Vladimir Putin. He... Uh,
Kim Jong-un is now having love letters written to Donald Trump. When I voted for Trump, I was looking for change, I was looking for maybe a non-political person coming in and a businessman bringing his, uh, you know, his, his expertise, his skills into a leadership. He's not very uh, focused, he's not very sincere to whatever he decides to do. Uh, things change fast. A good example is, you know, with uh, Putin and with Russia, right? There's a comment that we are hearing from Trump and then we are seeing all these sanctions being imposed as well. So I'm not so sure who's running the country right now and I'm not so sure if we are also very sure as to which direction we are going. Stephanie, why are you feeling energized as you approach the midterms? I think I'm more feeling embarrassed um, as a lifelong Republican, I guess, I would consider myself, you know, part of the religious right. And now the values that I see coming from the White House just don't mesh up with what I mm -hmm. believe. Can you pinpoint a moment that you changed from being a President Trump supporter to feeling embarrassed? Um, boy. <laughs> Which so one? <laughs> Which card do you want? Which card? <laughs> one, yeah. You know, even, even listening to his the inauguration speech just kind of, um, very dark was dark and antagonistic and there there has not seemed to be any effort to unite the country it's it's always us against someone or these people against someone else so as i watched this i was just <laughs> i was on the verge of banging my head against the desk because the trump that they voted for is still the exact same trump he is today the difference is they stopped drinking the Kool-Aid and all of a sudden they see what we all saw from the very beginning, that this person is an unhinged lunatic, he's a buffoon, he has no human empathy, he's narcissistic, and clearly he does not have the temperament needed to be dog catcher, let alone president. But they're seeing it now and the reasons why they stopped supporting Donald Trump, I mean, this has all been characteristics of Donald Trump from the very beginning. So it's odd to me. So let's get to their specific responses. So one panelist said that um, they were afraid of the dictator in the White House who has no empathy for anything and will never admit when he makes a mistake. Now, Camerata followed up and said, well, what were you expecting? And this particular voter said that they like the fact that Donald Trump had this anti-establishment message. He said the system was rigged, and unfortunately, it turned out he surrounded himself with crooks. I mean, that's true, yeah, but this is he's always surrounded himself with crooks. And I know that there's only stories now that are coming out about just how big of a crook him and his family were. I mean, him and his dad did millions of dollars in tax fraud. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, evaded taxes. I mean, th this is a, a con man, businessman, Trump University. So, I mean, he's always been a crook. He's always surrounded himself with crooks. And surprise, surprise, when he became president, he did the same thing. So, I mean, I it just, <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. So, getting to another person. Um... This individual states the divisiveness and rhetoric coming from the president is a daily exhausting thing and stated that she's afraid he'd cancel elections because he's a wannabe dictator. Was his rhetoric not divisive from the get-go? On the day he announced that he was running for president, he called Mexicans rapists and said, I'm sure some are good people. I just, 
I don't get it. it. It was a cult of personality, and there was this fog that was clouding their brains, and I don't want to psychoanalyze people, but I don't have any other explanation. All of their gripes with Trump now, they're describing the Trump we all saw, so it makes no sense to me. Another said, he's not very focused, he's not very sincere for whatever he decides to do. Yeah, that hasn't changed. The voter who considered herself as part of the religious right was embarrassed as a lifelong Republican, and she states, there's no effort to unite the country. It's always us against someone or these people against someone else. That was how he got elected, was by dividing the country. It's called divide and conquer. You pit working class Americans against each other. This is what capitalist pigs like Donald Trump do. You get white working class voters to think that, you know, it's black working class voters or undocumented immigrants who are the problem when it comes to their economic woes, when in actuality, it's the system itself that's rigged. Now, to Trump's credit, he did talk about the rigged system, but by and large, one of his main go-to tactics during the campaign was divide and conquer. He was divisiveness. It was what propelled him, I think, to that number one spot. Because, I mean, this person who was embarrassed to be a lifelong Republican, Donald Trump just puts an ugly face to Republican Party policies that they've always had. I mean, they've become more extreme, sure. But the Republican Party has always been morally bankrupt. And their alliance with the evangelical right did not change that. So I don't want to make it seem as if I am down on these people and that I am shaming them for regretting their vote for Donald Trump. It's just really upsetting to see these people describe all of our main issues with Donald Trump. Where were you when we were all saying these things about Donald Trump, when we were calling out the divisiveness? Where were you then? So I, I don't get why seeing him as president suddenly was the thing that flipped it in their mind to where they thought, oh, okay, all these things that I once uh, didn't see before, I see. Right, we all saw it. So anyways, moving on to the next clip, um, Allison Camerata points out that what they're talking about, I mean, there's no policy implications, there's no economic reasoning as to why they're no longer in support of Donald Trump, and they kind of explain why that's the case here. We always hear, it's the economy, stupid. None of you are mentioning that. And the economy is going well. The unemployment rate is at a historic low. The stock market is at a historic high. But that's not what any of you are focused on. Why not? The economy reacts slowly to anything that happens. So I would say a lot of what is, is taking place now uh, is a result of, of Barack Obama. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm thinking about what he's done to our country. Our country was supposed to be a country for the people and by the people for the people. And I don't see that it's that way anymore. And I'm we're supposed to let people come in like the immigrants. And what really broke my heart was when I saw those children being mm -hmm. torn away from their Parents. Is this the America that I grew up in? I don't think it's so. Not. No, it isn't. So character issue, is it fair to say, for all of you, has superseded the even the issues that you voted on. Is that what you're saying? Of course. Fair yeah, enough. That is. Absolutely. I'm mortified every day. What happened with um, Christine uh, Ford, uh, the, the accusers that accused Donald Trump, the way that they say they're all lying. Every day I'm just speechless. I really am just speechless. How many of you are affected by the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. How many of you have really been affected by what you've heard? Go ahead. You know, just the fact that we had to go through this, I think it's, it's wrong. So you believe the women? I do. Of course. Yeah. The hypocrisy is, is 
astounding to me. If they were the a lot of these people are the same people who were um, railing against Clinton and wanted Clinton to be impeached for what he did. And now they are supporting Donald Trump and Brett Kavanaugh for essentially the same thing. Exactly. And so now the president calls the women who have come forward a hoax, a Democratic hoax. Mm. What do you make of that language? It's just not surprising. Sh it's shameful. Shameful. He's, a, he's the hoax, if you ask me. I'm a victim of rape. And to hear this woman sit in front and under oath swear uh, and tell her story about what happened to her, only to have grown men laugh at her, mock her. I just, um, I just don't know where the bottom is anymore. I've been a lifelong Republican since the day I turned 18. I think these midterms are really important um, because the Republicans, I'm, I'm very sad to say, have become, become very, very spineless. They become uh, cowardly, and uh, they, they're just extraordinarily unwilling to stand up to Donald Trump and his bizarreness. I mean, it's, it's a circus of bizarreness that takes place daily. Watching this, it did shed a little bit more light on their reasoning. I think that that one lady who states that she stopped supporting him specifically when she saw children torn away from their parents at the border, that actually makes sense to me, right? Because in the abstract, you could think about his anti-immigrant policies and think, well, you know, I could put that aside and vote for him in spite of that if it's going to benefit me personally as a self-interested voter to vote for Donald Trump. But I think seeing it in action, people realize this is, this is really awful. This is immoral. So that makes sense to me. I think that her rationale made sense to me. And then we had um, one individual say that he doesn't like how the Republican Party, you know, they're not standing up to Donald Trump. Uh, individuals like Lindsey Graham are being hypocritical and saying that Clinton should have been impeached for lying, but Kavanaugh should go on to be a Supreme Court justice. But again, I can't help but point out that the Republican Party has not changed specifically because of Donald Trump, they've slowly but surely been creeping towards extremism and they've gotten to the point where they just kind of fell off a cliff, right? Where they're just right-wing extremists comparable to these fringe parties, well, used to be fringe parties, that we saw in Europe. So, I think that this is insightful to a degree, but at the same time, what this demonstrates to me as someone who analyzes politics is that Individuals who like Donald Trump, this is nothing more than a cult of personality because he could contradict himself a hundred times a day. He can lie. He can walk back policies he previously supported, and it doesn't matter to them. It's all about a cult of personality. Things that all of us see who don't like Donald Trump, for some reason, they're unable to see it. It's as if when you have that friend who's in this relationship with the piece of shit and you try to convince them to get out of that relationship and they just don't see what you see. They don't agree with your characterization of their significant other. That's kind of what we're seeing, I think, when it comes to Donald Trump and his supporters. They're a cult. It is a cult of personality and that's why I call them MAGA cultists. And I'm glad that these individuals were smart enough to get out of that MAGA cult, but Unfortunately, there's still a number of individuals in this country that will never, ever leave Donald Trump, and they will be eternally loyal to him, which is just sad. So, um, at the end of the day, I, I really find these panels fascinating. I mean, this is a small sample size, right? But I think that these anecdotes are really helpful in kind of dissecting the minds of voters and seeing what makes them tick. 
you know, what what gets them politically. And I would have liked to learn a little bit more about what motivated them to vote for Trump in the first place. But I mean, they're describing the Trump we all saw from the beginning. And it just proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, that Donald Trump has a cult of personality, which is completely strange to me because he has such a shitty personality, too. He acts like a buffoon. He's childish. But nonetheless, I mean, I guess that doesn't matter if it's a cult of personality because people just like the person for them and, you know, they see what they want to see, essentially. So, you know, um, it's interesting. So even though it's the case that we have a proto-fascist, right-wing extremist, evangelical party in control of every single branch of government currently, some people, if you can believe this, still think SJWs on college campuses with blue hair, they pose one of the greatest risks to our country today. (laughs) I can't even say it with a straight face because it's so mind-numbingly stupid if you see everything that's going on mass deregulation that's going to lead to an economic collapse an increase of the military i don't know that i could take you seriously as a political opponent i can't take you seriously if you think that is less of a problem than SJWs. Now, it's not just Republicans who have this view. There are a lot of liberals who think that the SJW boogeyman is the greatest threat to the human race. It's not the Republican Party who's currently taking us backwards with regard to climate change, something that could literally devastate humanity. It's SJWs that might um, yell at you if you try to speak on their college campus. So it's just, it's unreal. Like, it's honestly baffling to me that people think this way. Baffling. So Princeton University professor Eddie Glaude was on Real Time with Bill Maher, and Bill Maher, he's someone who I don't necessarily think believes that SJWs will bring on the apocalypse, but he certainly thinks SJWs are one of the biggest problems ever, when that's just laughable. But thankfully, Eddie Glaude educated him on this issue and told him exactly what he needed to hear. And I'm going to show you the clip of that, and when we come back, I actually have more details to supplement what Eddie is saying here. Eddie, is free speech on campus being stifled with students protesting controversial speakers? I mean, what about that part of political correctness that you can't speak on campus, the home of free speech anymore? I think that's overstated. Really? Yeah, you you can imagine after Milo spoke at UCLA, he probably went someplace else and spoke without any any, any, uh, incident. You think about Charles Murray at Middlebury, he probably wound up, which he did at NYU the next day, without any any incident. You you have to pick where you can speak? No, no, thousands, what I'm saying, there are thousands of lectures on college campuses across the ideological spectrum that happen Every day wow. without these incidents, what you usually get. I, I, you what, read a lot about it a lot. I know that's because I, that's because it's it's sensational. Just like you in your opening monologue, you talked well, about the weatherman. That guy, remember that guy in the weather report where the wind was blowing and the people were walking behind him and casually. <laughs> Sometimes we report about what's happening on campuses in a sensationalized manner. Okay, all right. So that was absolutely fantastic, Eddie Glaude told Bill Maher exactly what he needed to hear. Are SJWs a problem? Yes, but as Eddie states, it's overstated. Look, if you have a splinter in your foot, that doesn't mean that you're dying, right? It's a small problem. It's irritating. It doesn't necessarily do you any good, per se. But 
it doesn't mean that your dem <laughs> your dem your demise is inevitable, right? That's kind of what SJWs are. They're they're problematic, but a lot of people will conflate them to just the biggest problem ever when it's like, "Hey dipshit, why don't you look at what Republicans are doing? They're in control of every single branch of government and they are wreaking havoc on the environment." on civil rights and civil liberties. But nope, it's the blue-haired people on college campuses. <laughs> they're, they're the problem. So, I mean, clearly this is a story that is overly sensationalized, and we hear about this because this contributes to the victim narrative of Republicans. They desperately want you to believe that it's not them who's intolerant as they fight against their rights. It's actually the left who's intolerant because they won't even, you know, let them speak on the college campuses of their choice. And Bill Maher's initial response was, you have to pick where you speak in America now? Why the fuck do people feel entitled to speak on college campuses? I don't get to speak on any college campus I want. If I wanted to speak at Harvard, they'd probably tell me to go fuck myself. I'd say, hey, you know, my name is Mike. I run a YouTube show called The Humanist Report. I'd like to speak on your campus. They'd probably tell me to go fuck myself. They're probably like, who's this asshole? So I, I just, I don't understand why people feel entitled to speak on any college campus at any time they want to, to begin with. But the fact that them being protested is just to say that that's a huge problem it doesn't even make sense. That's part of free speech. If you claim that these people on college campuses are against free speech, well, it's part of their free speech to protest. Now, I don't necessarily agree that they should shut down those speaking events, but nonetheless, this is a problem that is incredibly overblown. And when Bill Maher and even liberals buy into this narrative that SJWs on college campuses are this huge issue, they're unwittingly doing the bidding of Republicans and right-wing extremists who couldn't care less about free speech abuses when it happens to the left. And what's ridiculous to me is the sheer hypocrisy. Because for every blue-haired SJW on a college campus that protests and shut down some right-wing speaker, there's about a hundred more right-wing evangelical snowflakes who are just as easily triggered as an SJW. Tommy Lauren goes on Fox News and denounces anyone who dares to kneel during the national anthem. I'm sure your crazy racist uncle on Facebook has shared posts of people burning the flag and how he thinks they should be in jail if they burn the flag. I mean, why isn't anyone talking about how politically correct Republicans are when it comes to this issue and flag burning? I mean, the president literally called for NFL players to be fired when they don't stand for the anthem, but yet everyone's worried about SJWs. They're the boogeymans who are shutting down free speech. Now I already know what the response will be, but Mike, what about all of these right-wing professors who are being shut down and fired on college campuses if they say something that students don't like? Well, my response is, what about all the left-wing professors that are being fired for speech? This, in general, is a phenomenon that is incredibly rare, but in the event someone is fired, a professor specifically is fired because of political speech, it's usually the left-winger who's targeted, not the conservative, contrary to popular belief, which really speaks to just how sensationalized this issue has become. And think about this. There are hundreds of speeches given by right-wingers at college campuses across the country that we never hear about. We only hear when there's an issue. Steven Crowder 
speaks at college campuses all the time. And most of the time, he has no issue. But can you guess what happens the minute he gets triggered and starts losing a debate? Well, he becomes the snowflake and threatens to shut down his opponent's speech. And you came in and just said shill. And I'm really quickly to give him, get ready to give the microphone to someone else if you don't stop doing this, because this isn't the goal of this. What's a shill? Well, I think you're getting upset because you're losing a debate, but... I mean, unbelievable, but nobody will call that out. Nobody will lambast Steven Crowder for threatening to take the mic away from someone because he got triggered by something that that individual said. It's just, it, it, it's so ridiculous and individuals like Blair White who's a Trump supporter who's a political commentator on YouTube she kind of blew the whistle on these right-wingers and said look if you if you're gonna have a rally then take signs that people can hold up to make it seem as if they're protesting you that helps with the narrative that you know the left is intolerant she literally admitted that this is what some people told her that they do on the right so the problem with SJWs is just that they're able to make a lot of noise because this kind of serves a narrative from the right, but currently SJWs are not the problem. It is the right-wing minority party who is extremist, who's proto-fascist, that controls every single branch of government. But for some reason, some people think that SJWs are the biggest problem in the world right now. There are SJWs on both sides, and I'd argue that right-wing SJWs are more of a problem. The difference, though, is that when a left-wing SJW acts like a snowflake, they get made fun of. When a right-wing SJW acts like a snowflake and gets triggered, they make laws. That's the difference. That's who the threat is. So if you really care about Western society and free speech, then you would be focusing on the right-wing party in power, not SJWs, because that's not an issue. It's not an issue. It's obviously overblown, and anyone who can't see that has clearly been duped by the right. Last summer, during the FCC's comment period ahead of their repeal of net neutrality, it was really, really difficult to discern just how many anti and pro net neutrality comments were being submitted to the FCC, and that's because we all know their system was overwhelmed with fake comments. And just on this program, I had a lot of viewers reach out saying, Mike, my identity is being used without my permission to file an anti-net neutrality comment. I support net neutrality, but for some reason, I'm finding a system or a comment in the system rather that has my identity. Also, there were a number of individuals that had deceased relatives submit comments to the FCC. There were celebrities, former presidents, Barack Obama, including Jesus Christ submitted a comment to the FCC saying that he was against net neutrality. So obviously, the overall process was completely botched and it was difficult to tell how many of those comments were true and authentic. But when you look at public opinion polls, then I think you could probably have reasonably deduced that most of the comments being submitted by actual human beings probably were, in fact, against the FCC's plan to repeal net neutrality. But thankfully, we no longer have to wonder because a researcher from Stanford University named Ryan Singel conducted a study trying to get to the bottom of just how many comments submitted by unique users, individuals, not robots, but 
real comments were in fact against the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. And the number is overwhelming. Nearly 100% of unique comments were in support of net neutrality and against the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. And in a blog post for the Center for Internet and Society, Sinjal explains his study a bit further. In the lead-up to the FCC's historic vote in December of 2017 to repeal all net neutrality protections, 22 million comments were filed to the agency. But unfortunately, millions of those comments were fake. Some of the fake comments were part of a sophisticated campaign that filed fake comments using the names of real people, including journalists, senators, and dead people. The FCC did nothing to try to prevent comment stuffing and comment fraud, and even after the vote made no attempt to help the public, journalists, policymakers actually understand what Americans actually told the FCC about the repeal of the 2015 Open Internet Order. This report, entitled Filtering Out the Bots, What Americans Actually Told the FCC About Net Neutrality Repeal, aims to make that clear. To do so, this report relied heavily on previous data science work on this corpus by data scientist Jeff Cow. This report used 800,000 comments Cow identified as semantic standouts from form letter and fraud campaigns. These unique comments were overwhelmingly in support of keeping the 2015 open internet order. In fact, 99.7% of comments opposed the repeal of net neutrality protections. This report then matched and sorted those comments to geographic areas, including the 50 states and every congressional district. In all, 646,041 unique comments were matched to congressional districts. The resulting reports for each district offer an avenue into exploring what citizens' concerns are and shows the breadth and diversity of concerns citizens had about the FCC declaring it would no longer ensure that Americans got to choose what websites, applications, and services they use without interference from companies they pay to get online. Now, before I give you my reaction to the study, I do want to give you Another interesting piece of information that we got from the author. So, the creation of these reports and some also showed that commenters know what net neutrality is, contrary to popular belief, and they articulated clearly why they needed its protections. So that's encouraging. I, I've been worried about this because there's been so much propaganda that is being disseminated against net neutrality at the behest of internet service providers. And it felt as if we were fighting a losing battle when it comes to information. But it seems like Americans know what's at stake or they knew what was at stake and still do, presumably. And they clearly articulated why we need to keep net neutrality. Now, additionally, rural Americans care about net neutrality, including being concerned about lacking choice of providers. That's really important. Uh, support for net neutrality is strong in both Democratic and Republican districts. That's something that we already knew, but this kind of confirms the polling data nationally. And finally, the number of comments in midterm races considered to be competitive are higher than average. So, hopefully, anyone who is in favor of net neutrality, any Democrat running in a competitive district, is going to do their absolute best to make this a campaign issue because that is going to be something that will make their campaigns more successful according to this data here. But by and large, 
I suspected that it was the case that most people who submitted comments to the FCC were in support of net neutrality, right? I'm assuming that the Ben Shapiro viewers of the world who bought into his nonsense and propaganda on this issue maybe submitted a few comments. I'm sure that the um, antagonistic trigger the libs wing of Trump's base submitted some comments just to spite us, but... To say that, if you, if you would have told me back then that the number of unique comments was about 100% for net neutrality, I wouldn't have believed you. So this is surprising even to me because I knew that how, just how popular this issue has been and continues to be and how it continues to remain on the minds of Americans, but I didn't know it was that popular. Now, again, when you look at public opinion polls, the overwhelming majority of Americans in both parties support net neutrality. But the comment system, for them to receive 99.7% unique comments telling them, do not repeal net neutrality, and for them to do it anyway, I mean, this is a slap in the face to Americans. This is an affront to democracy. And it really, I mean, we, we can't move on from just how arbitrary and undemocratic this entire process was. Ajit Pai and the FCC pushed forward with a highly unpopular repeal of net neutrality in spite of what the American people wanted. He knew that public opinion was against him in spite of the fact that he publicly maintained that public opinion was on his side. He knew what was at stake. He knew what we wanted, and he didn't care. He did it anyway because I've said this once. I'll say it again. He came from the industry. He was a Verizon attorney, and when he leaves his job at the FCC, he'll most likely go back to the industry he came from. One of the unforeseen consequences of Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court is that in the event the legal fight for net neutrality ends up making its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, we know exactly how he's going to rule. He's going to rule against net neutrality. Therefore, this individual may actually be the final nail in net neutrality's coffin. Now, we don't necessarily know exactly how these lawsuits will turn out. We don't know specifically how far they'll go in the American justice system. But what we do know is that these legal fights are kicking off, and this is going to be a long and heated battle. Now, lately, we've been hearing about the Justice Department's lawsuit against the state of California over their net neutrality law, and last week, we learned that lobbyists and organizations that represent internet service providers like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T, well, they're all suing the state of California, and that's really what we've been hearing the most about lately with regard to the legal fight over net neutrality, but I also want to remind you that once the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality in 2017, well, attorneys general from 22 states, along with tech companies such as Mozilla, Facebook, and Google, they all are also suing the FCC. So understand that there's lawsuits going both ways. On one hand, you have the Justice Department and a certain portion of um, companies like internet service providers suing to undo net neutrality. And then you have uh, states, attorneys general from 22 states, red and blue states, along with giant tech companies like Google and Facebook, suing to undo the repeal of net neutrality. So 
this is really, really important. And the reason why I'm bringing up that lawsuit is because the hearings for that lawsuit in particular have begun and it's raising questions about whether or not we'll win and how far it will go. And if it does, in fact, reach the Supreme Court, what will happen at that point? So I want to get to an article by the Washington Post from Tony Rom, who explains the legal argument that Ajit Pai and the FCC are making in court to defend net neutrality because currently they're in the hot seat. California will soon have to defend their net neutrality law, but the FCC is currently having to legally defend their repeal of net neutrality. And this is what Tony Rom writes about their defense. The Federal Communications Commission told a federal court on Thursday that it acted properly when it repealed the U.S. government's net neutrality rules in 2017, marking its first legal salvo in a campaign to battle 22 states and tech companies, including Mozilla, Facebook, and Google, that contend the the agency's move was illegal. In the FCC's new filing with the U.S. Court of Appeals for District of Columbia Circuit, the agency said Thursday it was perfectly within its right to rethink how it regulated those entities, citing a landmark Supreme Court decision from 2005 outlining the agency's powers. The FCC said its evidence showed the Obama-era net neutrality rules had stifled investment in broadband expansion, justifying the decision to wipe the protection off its books. From from here, the FCC's filing sets the stage for what is universally expected to be a protracted and heated legal battle over the government's ability to regulate the internet. State attorneys general, consumer advocates, and top tech companies have sharply rebuked the FCC's rationale for eliminating net neutrality rules pointing to the millions of web users who wrote the agency in defense of those federal protections, while telecom giants have backed the Trump administration's move. Their war could be destined for the Supreme Court. If that happens, experts are closely watching the court's newest justice, Brett M. Kavanaugh, who questioned the FCC's authority to adopt sweeping net neutrality protections as part of a dissent he wrote in a related case in 2017. The FCC told the D.C. appeals court to uphold its prohibition on states from adopting their own net neutrality rules. The move has enraged net neutrality advocates, but it has not deterred them. California forged ahead, now adopting a law of its own and triggering a lawsuit from the Justice Department earlier this month. So, from my understanding, it seems as if this is shaping up to be a legal battle over a specific question. How do we characterize the internet? Is the internet a public utility or is it part of information services that companies provide? So if it is, in fact, a public utility, then we can, in fact, regulate it as a common carrier under Title II of the Communications Act. And if it's an information service and ISPs don't actually provide people with a public utility, if the Internet isn't a public utility, then certainly the FCC does not have the authority to regulate the internet as such. And if it's characterized as information services under that category specifically, that means that less regulations would be applied to the internet. And the reason why Ajit Pai is making this argument in court is because the government doesn't have the authority to regulate information services to the extent that they can regulate public utilities. Now, here's what's problematic about Ajit Pai's claim. He says that the reason why ISPs should not be regulated to the extent that they are, the reason why the internet shouldn't be characterized as a public utility is because when you characterize the internet as a public utility and you regulate it 
as a common carrier under Title II, then that unfortunately stifles investment. Now, up until this point, we've seen zero evidence for that claim. In fact, we've seen evidence to the contrary that shows since the FCC adopted their Title II order to solidify net neutrality, what happened? Investment actually increased. And the reason why we know it increased and why internet service providers aren't actually worried about net neutrality is because they have an obligation to tell the truth to shareholders. And what were they saying behind closed doors to their shareholders? Look, we can assure you this is not going to hurt us. But Ajit Pai has been making this baseless claim that, look, this is stifling investment. The problem for Ajit Pai now is that you can't just repeat that lie over and over and hope that it sticks. In the court of law, you've got to provide evidence to back up your claim. And we all know that Ajit Pai does not have the evidence needed to prove that in the court of law. That's just a fact. So that's obviously demonstrably false. And it's one of the reasons why I think we have a pretty good chance at winning this legal battle. Although I'm not willing to make a prediction because it is the case that the court could side with Ajit Pai for other reasons. And that would be devastating if so. So I don't want to get your hopes up. I just think we should be cautiously optimistic. Now, ultimately, even if we don't know how this is going to turn out, a reason why I say we should be cautiously optimistic and not just think that Ajit Pai and the FCC will lose because they don't have evidence for their claim is because there are other legal arguments against net neutrality. Now, in the event this makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, and I think that the FCC and Ajit Pai will do what they can to petition the court for a writ if it makes it there to get them to hear it because we know that the Supreme Court would likely strike it down. And I actually want to read to you Brett Kavanaugh's dissenting opinion in a case from 2017 because it gives you an idea of how he'd vote and also it gives you an idea of the legal argument that justices make to strike down net neutrality or one that they wouldn't make rather. So in a 2017 ruling for the U.S. Court of Appeals D.C. Circuit, this is what Brett Kavanaugh said about net neutrality. He came out against it on the basis of two reasons. First, he claims that Congress didn't authorize the FCC to create the net neutrality rule in 2015 and that the Communications Act of 1934 doesn't clearly state that the FCC actually has the authority to regulate the internet under Title II of the Communications Act. So for that reason, he thinks that net neutrality is unlawful. Now, second, he actually argued that, quote, the First Amendment bars government from restricting the editorial discretion of internet service providers. So in his view, in offering consumers access to the internet, he thinks that internet service providers should have editorial discretion with regard to what we see and don't see on the internet. And any regulation that prohibits ISPs from blocking or throttling certain websites, well, that violates their First Amendment rights because it infringes on their editorial discretion that he thinks they should have as internet service providers. In other words, according to Brett Kavanaugh, the internet isn't a public utility, it's more like a magazine. Now, the government couldn't tell magazines what they could and couldn't print, right? Well, in the same vein, he also thinks that the government shouldn't be able to tell ISPs what websites they do and don't have to provide people with access to. 
Now, in sum, he concludes by saying, quote, If the Supreme Court's major rules doctrine means what it says, then the net neutrality rule is unlawful because Congress has not clearly authorized the FCC to issue this major rule. And if the Supreme Court's Turner Broadcasting decisions mean what they say, then the net neutrality rule is unlawful because the rule impermissibly infringes on the internet service provider's editorial discretion. So based on that argument, he has two reasons as to why he thinks net neutrality is unlawful and unconstitutional. So if it makes it to the Supreme Court, it's going to die. There's a conservative majority, a solid conservative majority that will vote to uphold the FCC's repeal of net neutrality, leaving us no further legal recourse. Now, look, I don't necessarily know that it will make it to the Supreme Court, as I've stated previously in this video, but it's important to look at the legal arguments of opponents to net neutrality because what Brett Kavanaugh is saying here may be what a lower court judge echoes in their opinion for or against, uh, or specifically against net neutrality. So this is very, very worrying to say the least. So even if we have, I think, the winning legal argument and Ajit Pai doesn't have a solid argument or evidence to justify his repeal of net neutrality, that still doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to win. So as these court cases kick off, as we see Ajit Pai testify against the uh, attorneys general from 22 states, listen very closely to the legal argument he's making and the evidence he provides, because this is going to kind of give us an indication as to what way this is going to go, either for or against us. Now, at this point in time, I think it looks okay for us, but again, it really just depends on how far it makes it. It's very possible that this could end up in the Supreme Court, and if it does, net neutrality is permanently doomed. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, We'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly dose of stupidity. I'm going to take a DNA test. All of you have. I've been told that my grandmother was part Cherokee Indian. It may all be just talk, but you're going to find out in a couple of weeks because I'm going to take this. Test. You are going to take it. I'm taking it and the results are going to be revealed here. Thank you very much. Come this back is, in a couple of weeks and yeah, we'll take and a look. We'll, we'll find we'll out who know. you really are. I'll probably be Iranian. That'd be like terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. they're great people, just bad leaders. Yeah, bad leaders. Thank All right. I'm not in the Ayatollah yeah. branch, yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm not in the Ayatollah branch, yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> You're so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Stupidity. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the program. I want to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors, as usual, for helping the show to not only survive, but to thrive as well. Thank you so much. If you'd like to support us, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. Or if you want to get one of our Humanist Report shirts, including the Policy Over Platitudes t-shirt that some of the TH Army have been wearing, you could visit humanistreport.com slash store or visit the Humanist Report star on Spreadshirt 
to order one today. Thank you all so much. I will see you next week. Take care.